arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The largest, most ambitious structure in the universe, the Dyson Sphere, a megastructure that encompasses a whole star to capture its power output. For an intelligent species, building a Dyson Sphere is a technological leap on a par with the discovery of fire for our ancestors. The transition from a planetary species to an interstellar species. It would usher in an age of exploration and expansion on a scale we can barely imagine. When I was in college, I chose an elective course on science fiction. Are you kidding me? UMass Amherst was actually going to award me three credits for studying stuff I like. Yes, they did. In this course, I first learned about Dyson Spheres. Yes, Virginia, there is a Dyson, Freeman Dyson, who envisioned such mega structures as a part of a thought experiment that stated humanity would reach a point where it demanded all the energy output of the sun. Dyson published this in a 1960 issue of Science Magazine. His paper was entitled, Search for Artificial Stellar Sources of Infrared Radiation. Just a hint, Dyson read Olaf Stapleton's 1937 sci-fi novel, Star Maker. Let's listen to a passage from that book before we go forward with Commander Ross. Each world peopled with its unique, multitudinous race of sensitive individual intelligences, united in true community, was itself a living thing possessed of a common spirit. In each system of many populous orbits was itself a communal being. And the whole galaxy, knit in a single telepathic mesh, was a single intelligent and ardent being, the common spirit, the eye, of all its countless, diverse, and ephemeral individuals. The whole vast community now looked beyond itself toward its fellow galaxies. Resolved to pursue the adventure of life and of spirit, the cosmo, the widest of all spheres, it was in constant telepathic communication with its fellows, and at the same time, conceiving all kinds of strange, practical ambitions, it began to avail itself of the energies of the stars upon a scale hitherto unimagined. Not only was every solar system now surrounded by a gauze of light traps, which focused the escaping solar energy for intelligent use, so that the whole galaxy was dimmed but many stars that were not suited to be suns were disintegrated and rifled of their prodigious stores of subatomic energy. As we shall see, the Dyson Sphere will go to the next level, encountering a tight warping of dimensions, and perhaps the only hope for Ross and the others. Enough jibber-jabber. Episode 4, Galactic Command, The Nebula Planet by Robert P. Fitton, starts now. Chapter 18 in an area with dim light and a warmer temperature, Ross saw a tinted view of the star and outlines of the planet ahead. His body accelerated like a spacecraft toward the planet's surface. Instinctively, he braced himself with his arms upward, but he felt no impact. The area brightened and he fell onto a dirt road lined with spreading fluffy green trees and rolling fields to the woods. 
To his right was a circular garden, strewn with bright flowers across a dark soil, and a solid stone bench was set in the center. Grass blades, a shade lighter than the trees, surrounded the garden and were pushed up by a gentle warming wind and waves toward the slow-moving stream. Up the dirt road, puffy cotton clouds hovered over the open hills, and the yellow sun burned in the blue afternoon sky. Where am I? Ross heard something in the field. His heart beat rapidly as a small creature with luminous peachy skin moved from the grass. Dense pale brown hair, short like a horse's coat, covered the top of his tiny head. His fist-sized blue eyes had an elongated amber pupil, constantly changing as he focused on Ross. Upon closer examination, his soft skin showed no signs of aging and a widened snout nose led downward to lighter, thin, rosy lips. And he smiled with almost a human set of rounded teeth. Ross studied the being's intricately woven blue pastel garment, interlaced with a swath of black and red sickle design across his chest. The one-piece garb tucked neatly into his unlaced suede boots. He touched Ross with warm, smooth hands and nimble fingers. Ross counted eleven and triple-jointed thumbs with a hardened skin where humans had fingernails. Where am I? The being smiled and continued to speak with a metallic-like voice. You are safely inside what you call the Dyson Sphere on the third planet. My ship, it was destroyed? No, Commander. Your ship is intact. This enclosure the cryptus contains open spaces, as well as population centers. His smile seemed to reflect an inner peace. When our population required space, the cryptus evolved the Dyson Sphere. I thought I was dead. We uh, humans have a multitude of emotions. Ross wanted to crouch down to the being's height. Why haven't you made contact with us? Why do you shield yourself inside the cryptus? His pupil widened. We do not require your race. Do you understand? I don't know. Our people search and seek answers. We want to progress. Exactly. Look at the war you just fought with the members of your own race. Well, they started the confrontation, stated Ross. The being shook his head. And I don't berate you. It is the way you are. Then why are you dealing with the Antarians and Jack Bragg? He placed his arm around Ross. They walked back to the garden and sat on the bench. His warm hand encircled Ross's hand again. I take it you deplore killing. Death is the end of all possibilities. There are means for us to do what we must do. You will come to understand. I don't understand. We have told both Commander Bragg and Ralph of our plans for your race. I'm not sure whether they fully understand or seem to think they would somehow take advantage of our plan. They do not comprehend. Dr. Ellison does. Ross looked into his wide pupils. Is Dr. Ellison still alive? Yes. An enlightened individual. What is the plan? The being pressed his beveled, flushed lips. Both Galactic Command and the Antarian Sanctum will be parceled 
So it amounts to divide and conquer. I thought you were a peaceful race who wanted to be left alone. Ross's shadow was cast over the flowers where he stood. Maybe I have more in common with Rafik than I want to admit. I am sorry, Commander. I do respect you and your efforts. But we will do what we have to do. I understand that you want to conquer our people for whatever reasons. I want to go back with my crew. That is not possible. I want to be with my crew. Please. His pupil dilated as he looked up at Ross. Ross, we do not consider ourselves more advanced. We are what we are. Advancement is not a criterion for us. Our races are different. And no matter how the years and the millennia pass, we will always be different. Maybe. He stood and as he held both of Ross's hands, the warmth moved through his hand and up his arm. What is your name? Now his eyes reflected a certain sadness, and he pointed toward the hill extending upward from the stream. Follow the road, Ross. Let me negotiate with your people. The being released his grip and slowly shook his head. I'm sorry. There is nothing to negotiate. He turned and started back into the grass. Wait! You can't just leave me here. What? What's over the hill? Ross took several steps across the garden, but as the being pranced through the tall grass, a mirror hole appeared in the space ahead, but quickly collapsed. Ross ran into the grass and felt the air from a dimensional opening or portal. But he soon realized he was alone in the field. Come back! There has to be another way! His feet pushed down the grass blades as he shook his head. He had no reason to doubt the being's sincerity or his implacability. Trudging back to the garden, he caught a glimpse of the tiny footprints and bent down slowly to run his fingertips over the outlines in the rich soil. He looked across the grass and then up the road to the hill. He quickly crossed onto the road, but as he hiked along, his shiny boots were soon coated with a light, powdery dust. Less than a half an hour later, at the top of the hill, Another valley spread out below, and a wide gray river cut through the rounded blue mountains. Maybe a kilometer down the more gradual slope, a number of long buildings fanned out in a wide arc before the woods. John! Ross turned. Mike Pfeiffer ran up the road from the field. Ross started down and met Pfeiffer halfway. I was in the Metafac. Did you see the Zorka? asked Ross. Pfeiffer shook his head. Where are we? Third planet. But I'm wondering why you're here. Well, excuse me, I'll leave. How would I know why they brought me here? What did they look like? Ross stared at his friend for a moment. Small creature. Large eyes. Pale skin. Listen, Allison is alive. He's over the hill, according to the Masarvik. They call themselves the Masarvik people. Pfeiffer headed to the crest with Ross. Then he spoke English. Were there any more of them, and why are we here? Mike, they're going to attack command in the Sanctum. Somehow they've parceled out both areas. We have to notify command, said Pfeiffer. Well, that's not exactly going to be easy, is it? I don't even know what they've done with my ship, and the only other transport you and I have are our own two feet. Nice view. Ross looked over the valley again, down to the settlement in the woods below the hill. Down there. That's where Allison must be. 
I'm confused, John. Why are you and I here? Maybe Ellison knows. The afternoon sunlight cast shadows across the small forested ridge near a fast-moving stream down the far side of the hill. Three men in blue command fatigue suits moved out of the wooded area. They were waving and seemed to be happy to see both Ross and Pfeiffer. As they reached a wooden arch bridge, Ross identified the blue and red scientific delver patches on their suits. They saluted him when they saw his commander's uniform. If I won Marcus, sir, said a tall, dark-haired young man. I'm Commander John Ross, ESS-14, and this is my ship's doctor, Mike Pfeiffer. Is Dr. Ellison here, Marcus? asked Ross. Yes, sir. We've been here for several months. Do you have an SAV or some kind of... No. Masabric people brought us here from our locus. They brought us with our ship, but they perforated the hull, making it useless. Well, we need to talk to Dr. Ellison. The stream churned below as they crossed the wood slats. Do you people know anything of the attack? Attack? No, sir. Ross nodded, and they veered onto a trail under towering smooth maroon bark trees, similar to pines but with thicker, deep green needles. The pink-hued needles on the ground were soon pushed aside from the well-trodden path, leading towards several long wooden lodges. Ross learned from Mercus how Ellison had set up a makeshift lab in one of the buildings and was utilizing parts from his ship to construct some kind of escape device. Ross and Pfeiffer followed them along a huge fire pit, embers still warm, and over to a weathered building with no clapboards or wood sheets. The first rank knocked on the door frame. Dr. Ellison, we have visitors. Commander John Ross, ESS-14, and the ship's doctor, Pfeiffer. Ross edged forward. Portable lighting hanging from the support frames cast a bright light over the men working diligently along two tables, strewn with internal ship parts. At the far end of the building, a tall man with straight gray hair flipped up his mags and peered down the table. He set the mags on the table and walked briskly, his blue fatigues accentuating his large frame. He had a wide smile and his hazel eyes brightened when he saw Ross. What happened? Did we get an explorer spaceship through the cryptus? He extended his oversized hand and spoke in a clear, strong, charismatic voice. I am Dr. Howard Ellison. John Ross. Mike Pfeiffer. Commander, Doctor, where is your ship? Ross pushed his lips together. Doctor, the Masarvic people have somehow brought us here from our locus. I don't even know where my ship is. Not good, not good. He grit his teeth as he thought. We've all been retained, they said. Use our knowledge so they could be aware of us humans. Unfortunately, they have rendered my research vessel useless. Where are they now? Ellison looked at his team now gathering around. We haven't seen them since we approached the Cryptus. Cryptus? asked Pfeiffer. The Dyson Enclosure, said Ross. Ellison used his hands as he spoke slowly but deliberately. They are a race that demands anonymity. The Nebula has effectively hidden their Cryptus, and frankly, it was so far away from command across the third sector that even if someone got out here, entry through their collapsed star orifice is impossible without intervention. They control it, don't they? And if you're looking for the great Dr. Howard Ellison to tell you how, forget it, he said laughing heartily. I have no idea. Controlling a collapsed star is an absurdity. 
Ross smiled and stroked his chin. How does Jack Bragg come into this? Obviously, he's working with the Antarian, Rafik. Ellison shook his head. I know Rafik was on his way back to the Cryptus. He and Bragg commandeered ESS-27 on Axiom Baroma 7. They killed Commander Donaldson's crew and they headed out to the Nebula planet. I don't know what happened to Donaldson. We arrived on the Nebula planet and all outpost computer cells had been cleared. I left all my ideas about the Zorka presence beyond the Nebula and the readings surrounding the third sector inside those cells. You must have seen the energy striations. I fear it will spread like a giant cage. Ross looked at Pfeiffer and then nodded. They didn't want us to know, so they wiped the cells. Doctor, this parceling, the striations, I consider it an act of war. Ellison pondered the declaration for a short time. You're right, Ross, but there isn't much we or command can do about it. The energy striations is not only more powerful than anything we've ever produced, I am for the moment trapped here as you are. They used me simply for knowledge about humanity. Perhaps the doctor is here in case we need him over the years. Ross raised his brows, the frustration straining his speech. With all due respect to you, Dr. Ellison, I have no intention of staying here. Nor do I. Please, come through my field lab. They started down the long building past hundreds of internal parts and monitors. Entire consoles and readout areas were reassembled within the hut. Ellison turned to Ross, thinking for a moment as they reached his work area. Afternoon light cut across the console and table. Ross, elaborate on what happened to you on your locus. Well, I was drawn back into a hole of some kind. Yes, as we were from their city around the orifice and back to our ship, the Masarvic people have developed the ability to travel within associated dimensions. The being disappeared into a hole in thin air when I was in the field over the ridge. Of course, he seemed to disappear. What they are doing is similar to what we do with the coils. As you know, I studied under Dr. Ronald Eldridge, who expanded on dimensional compression concepts to increase coil output. Ellison followed the thick black and orange cables to a rounded hole in the building wall. He pointed out the open window. His bulky research vehicle was about 40 meters away, wedged between an adjacent knoll like a beached whale. Across the perforated blue hull were faded red letters. So you're trying to duplicate this effort. What I'm trying to do is translate the compression field's equations into a workable system. Basically, what the Masarvic people do is a dimensional burrowing, like a groundhog on Earth, moving easily over vast distances compressed inward. Two steps could equal several parsecs if done with the proper regulation. Yes, that's how it seemed when I arrived in the field, moving through space yet behind something, toward the star and planet. Then I was in the field. Are you saying we can get inside this dimension, Doctor? I don't know. I think I can. We're almost ready to send someone through the portal we've constructed back at the coils. The long vessel was out of place on solid ground. Even if Ellison could enter this dimensional realm, stopping the parceling without a command vessel was unlikely. Doctor, if they're going to attack command in the sanctum with this parceling... Attack? asked Ellison, turning from the window. We have to warn command. Ross, said the larger man, holding his forearm. 
They have no fleet and no weapons. Hiding behind the nebula is a prime example of this race's xenophobia. They just want to be left alone in their cryptus. Perhaps the word has a different connotation within their own race. Cage us in? Yes. Attack? No. Ross shrugged his shoulders and looked back across the tables. So you've managed to survive here on ship's stores. And what they have given us. Can I get you something to eat? I've been so busy explaining what I'm doing. Ross nodded, but his thoughts centered around Bragg and Rafik and why they were dealing with the Marsavik people. More lights popped on outside the huts as the day waned. Ellison showed them a wide green silo adjacent to the settlement, filled with grain provisions provided by the Marsavik people, and the water obtained from the stream was boiled before usage. An 18 month supply of provisions was still aboard the vessel. Under the portable lights, they ate and talked with the research party at the outside table. Ellison was a genius, and his attempts at piercing the dimensional holes and burrowing were within the realm of possibilities, but Ross was still plagued by Raffick's and Bragg's role. Some key bit of intelligence or command property, maybe even the Explorer spaceship, would allow the Masaryk people to parcel command space, and that thought gave him no peace. The darkness of the starless cryptus night was tinted orange by the yellow-webbed red moon above the mountain horizon. Ross shuffled across the encampment toward the ember bed spiraling flames and sparks moving up into the darkness. Ellison, seated with the research team and Mike Pfeiffer, lectured as if he were back at a command institute's full auditorium. Commander, do come over. I'm sure they're all bored with my pontificating and my ego, but they are retaining their good manners. Ross smiled and pulled up one of the camp stools. He watched the fire dance across Ellison's wide forehead and thick brows. Doctor, you can pontificate here or on my ship anytime you want. That is, if I ever find my ship again. Well, I wouldn't guarantee that your crew is safe, but the Masaryk people don't strike me as a brutal race, but a race steeped in rigid conformity and traditions. Not like the Antarians. Well, the Antarians are finished. Thanks to your victory at Marigold, which leads me to speculating, and forgive me, I don't know command politics or the intelligence system, but Rafik's fleeing after that battle and now showing up here with Bragg. Ross looked into the wispy yellow flames and leaned forward. Bragg would sell his own mother to the waste sector whipping post if it meant Marquis in his pocket. The research party collectively chuckled, and someone shouted out something about Bragg. Jack Bragg shouldn't even be in command. Raffick's reasons are the same. How so? asked Ellison. Antarian leaders are in prison. Their sanctum is decimated and their home planet occupied. What else does Raffick have left? Maybe they haven't offered him marquees, but they've given him something to chew on, both he and Bragg. Yes, I would agree, said Ellison, nodding. What they've brought to the Marsavik people may be of prime importance. Well, what would either of them have? asked Pfeiffer. Bragg is a third-rate commander, and Rafik is finished. Ellison pointed his long finger. Something the Marsavik people cannot get on their own. It might be something simple. Pfeiffer cleared his throat and then spoke. Doctor, don't you think the striations will be used to attack command? Ellison shook his head. No. While there are prodigious power fields in both gravity and time displacements, I don't think that alone can be used to mount a campaign against command. Again, I worry about some kind of barrier being constructed. 
unless it could be used in a different way, said Ross. And that, gentlemen, we are unable to gauge because we are trapped on this rock. If we can burrow like the Marsarvic people, maybe we can understand the use of the power. He stood and stretched his arms outward. Heading off for some shut-eye, Doctor? asked Ross. No, as a matter of fact, we're about to start the late shift if you care to join us. Whatever I can do, said Ross as he also stood. I think we're closer than we think to creating the effect we want with the coils, said Allison. With the firelight flickering on the wood exterior of the huts, the two men walked from the gathering. Mike Pfeiffer swears you'll do it. You have a very humble but bright man there, Commander. The right combination aboard an explorer spaceship. They moved under the trees and toward the blazing white portable lights in the long building ahead. The outlines of the ship also thrust huge shadows up the hill and under the trees. Pfeiffer told me about Nancy Burke. You knew Nancy. Yes, over the years, Nancy bent a few stories about my efforts. Pfeiffer was upset he couldn't do anything about the disease that killed her. Mike takes his job very seriously. They walked through the door and into the long, well-lit hut. Given the time, he would probably find a cure. I just told him that. You can't function as a ship's doctor and researcher at the same time. He's taken apart that disease a hundred times and has all the enzymes categorized, but it can't be stopped. He has the time now to research it. When they reached his station, Allison activated the monitors. How close are you, doctor? If we can travel quickly... Well, without the gargantuan power from the collapsed star, the coil compression might not even work. We might not even be able to burrow outside the cryptus. If we can do that at all, there's the problem of air. The air follows them, but they would need air. This is all very tenuous. Ross reached out and held Ellison's arm. If you can't do this, we might as well be prepared to enjoy our starless skies and red and yellow moonlit nights because we'll never have the means to leave this planet. Voyage 24, Hugh Lindsay commanding, Polonis 756A, Explorer Spaceship 14, Main Link None, Polonis 143, 29 Biographs 2155, no additional links with Nebula Planet. Commander Ross and Dr. Pfeiffer have been missing for 7 hours and 43 minutes. After a brief and inconclusive battle with the Antarians and Jack Bragg, commanding the commandeered vessel ESS-27, ESS-14 was drawn in by five Zorka ships, using a tug-drag energy type of field, into the Dyson Sphere. Commander Ross disappeared from the Locus, and Dr. Pfeiffer from the Metafac. ESS-14 materialized outside the nebula, orbiting once again the abandoned nebula planet. Coils are not operational. Communications are skewed by the power field emanating from within the Zorka enclosure's trapping of a collapsed star. Mr. Muldoon has propulsion and science teams addressing the coil problem as we are stuck in orbit and unable to find Commander Ross. Of greatest concern is that our energy packets expanding across the skies are now outlining the third sector. Hugh Lindsay commanding ESS-14. Chapter 19 Polonus replayed the encounter with the Zorka ships at the Dyson Sphere. Is that a conventional tug-drag beam? asked Lindy. No. Areas would indicate extreme intensity, said Polonus. Gil Webb looked over his shoulder as the monitor filled with the larger honeycomb patterns. Eight-sided and then it splits again. 
Lindy nodded, watching the pattern, each octagon section splitting like a cell in reproduction into a unit smaller but equally as dense. We know one thing. What's that? asked Lindy. This civilization is capable of producing copious amounts of energy, said Webb. What exactly are they doing with the packets, Polonis? Are they strong enough to wrap the sector? You have answered the question, Lindy. They are enclosing the sector. And we're stuck, not knowing what they did with John and Pfeiffer. He pushed the propulsion button. Frank, coil status. The bearded Muldoon looked up at the other end of a catwalk full of technicians along the coils. He squinted. Unchanged. Then he looked back toward the coils. Well, you must have some idea what's going on here, Frank. Look, every new particle canister we place in the coils acts the same as those already inside. Everything is frozen. We have to go back in there, said Lindy. Don't count on it or getting any signals back to command until that racket stops. We can't take on such energy levels. Then find a way around it. Use something else. Lindsay out. He looked at a pensive Gil Webb. And what are you looking at, Gilly? I think we're stuck here. Lindy said nothing, even though he knew Gil was probably right, and he moved up the stairs to the rim. He passed without even asking whether his messages to command had broken free of the nebular energy. As he stepped into the conveyor car and held the side handle, he wondered how Ross would deal with this situation. Bring me to conveyor bridge number three. The car doors closed and he moved away from the locusts through the walking corridors. Ross might work out the stress better, maybe spar with Pfeiffer. Lindy banged the transparency and wondered if Ross and Pfeiffer were even alive. More than likely, they were taken for some unknown reason. The car slowed and stopped at the third conveyor bridge. The doors opened and he strutted onto the observation deck adjacent to the rec room. A brilliant pink glow was pasted over the rear panel walls. He could see the gaseous intricacies reflected on the glossy floor tiles as he stepped up to the window. At the edge of the ship's hull, the rusty nebula planet's rounded edge was matted against the nebula. He pushed the button for propulsion on the Locus. Propulsion Locus, SR Rivka. It's Lindy. I'm on a radio in OD3. Can we at least bring this vessel around so I can see the stars and not that damn nebula? We can turn it around, but we have no coil capacity. Unless Muldoon constructs a new coil system in his spare time. Lindy smiled and almost instantly sensed movement as the vessel turned and swept across the nebula. A full minute elapsed before the nebula passed from view and the starfield took its place. He balanced his elbow on a bent knee and let his chin rest on his fist. The planet, with its complex and undulating plains and corrugated mountain ranges, moved slowly into place. At this vast distance, the stars were changed in alignment. He noted Earth's own sun, a pin dot, and the brighter red Antares. But the energy packets, honeycombed at this distance, were widening, and if left unabated, would join with the other three areas now extending back across the sector. Haven't you got better things to do, Lindy? Lindy smiled as Mary Kerinsky entered the fire entrance. As a matter of fact, Doctor, I have a multitude of things I could be doing. Name a problem and I probably have it. Let me guess, you're trying to play Commander Ross and are frustrated because you haven't magically popped out of the Zorka control and you're worried about John. Yeah, that about sums it up. Lindy, forget about John. What? She sat on the window ledge seat. I think John and Mike were taken by the Zorka for whatever reason. He's a resourceful guy. They both are. 
I don't like being stuck here, Kerensky, and I don't like that energy shooting out from the nebula. Listen, this crew's been through too much together in the last years to worry about some Zorka energy field. It's not hurting anybody, is it? Lindy pinched the bridge of his nose and smiled. Mary, the damn thing is potentially wrapping and enveloping the entire sector. We were on a survey party once. You, me, Ross, Kaczynski. I don't remember. Where were we? Near the waste sector. An uncharted place called Purble. The fourth planet in a binary system, right? He broke into a long laugh. <laughs> okay, I know. I know what you're going to say. John arrived on the planet and everything went wrong. His compact went down. He bent over to pick up something and his pants actually ripped. And one of the planetary representatives thought it was a part of his garb as commander. He walked around John like he was on an inspection detail. He knew John was upset and he played it to the limit. John ordered another SAV down on alert status with a new uniform. He was livid and tried to erase the recorded disc. But Eva had found out about it and got him mad back at the other ship. All the admirals were laughing. They had convinced John he was going to lose command of his ship. Lindy wiped a tear from his eye as he smiled. John was so serious, so formal, so detailed. It was great. His laughter sputtered as he looked back into space. It's getting worse. What's the matter? Up there. He pointed to the thickening green line spreading across the stars. His compact sounded and he pushed the button. Wendy, this is Gil. We've got a problem. Oh, dare I ask. Those packets are following on a course between the third sector, spaceports, and the motherships linked together by transmit stations. Somehow they have the coordinates and are surrounding us. Lindy shook his head. Not the headline I wanted to read, Gilly. And Lindy, we're picking up several low frequency scramble from Axiom Baroma. Admiral Ebert. Ebert is on Baroma? Asked Lindy. Again, he gazed at the little octagon energy packets through a magnifier on the observation deck window. Yes, they were aware of the energy surround. One minute. These signals have been boosted. They report the energy readings in other areas are equally as intense. Why is Ebert on Baroma? Can we send anything out? Negative. Too much interference on this end, answered Gilly. Apparently a massive amount of men and ships have been moved into Baroma as a staging area because of all this. Ah, Lindy banged his clenched fist into his open hand. Dr. Kerensky no longer smiled. Listen, send out our status anyway. Yes, sir. Muldoon! Yo! Frank, any luck with the coils? Lock tight. We're not going anywhere. What's happening outside, Lindy? One of my men reported that the energy field is surrounding the command transmitter stations. Yes, that is true. Lindy could see the trend. The energy would get tighter and tighter, forming smaller fragments, and he had his doubts whether command could mount any defense against it at all. I'm assuming that the Zorker is sending it back, but I don't know why, said Muldoon. Neither do I, Frank. Neither do I. Chapter 20 Jack Bragg wondered whether he could fully trust the Antarians now that the Masarvic people had delivered on their promise to fill the sky pilot bays with Caleb's Zoria. He walked behind the shorter Rafek and his three Serbians, still in their matted silver uniforms, toward propulsion. Only slightly larger than children, but formidable warriors, they would kill him with no remorse. But he had no choice in making a deal with them. 
with the war over and his own records so closely examined, command would vanquish him to some remote planet and demote his rank. The Antarians moved quickly through propulsion and veered toward the sky pilot corridor. Rafik had a simple request when he held a drac beam at Bragg's head after the Battle of Marigal. At first, Bragg had thought it was bad luck meeting an Antarian commander during the first planetary post-battle sweep, but when Rafik offered him a massive amount of Caleb's aurea, he listened. Rafik would not say how he had access to the gem and power source. His request to Bragg was simple and extraordinary. For unknown reasons, Bragg was to provide the coordinates of all Galactic Command transmit stations in the third sector. Brad thought the request so simple and the payoff so great he couldn't refuse it. Now as he walked around the curved corridor, the velvet green blue glow from the aurea covered the corridor walls. The area was specifically cooled because of the combined heat from the gems. Blocks of the luminescent gem were stacked between the sky pilot ships. The energy packet gem was natural to Caleb in the command system, but the planet was mined out 50 years ago. To produce the gem now required an infiltrator 24 kilometers in diameter, powered by cities of coil inducement activators. Half of the bars in ESS-27's bays belonged to him. He had enough to power colonies, planetary cities, or to be precisely cut into gemstones, probably the most profitable use. Well, Bragg, said the white-haired Rafik as he turned. His red eyes had the glow of the enemy, yet Bragg had to trust him now. Your career has been revitalized. Bragg stared at the Aurea. How, how, how did you get it? How did they do it? It's always amazed me how you in command would ask such a question like that. You just take it, you fool. Is that the Evorkton code? You know precious little of the code. You will have your portion and we will part our ways once we are outside the cryptic. Bragg nodded and approached the adjacent stacked blocks piled five meters above him. He climbed a small ladder and put his hands around one of the top blocks. The contained energy warmed the aurea to a soothing 130 degree temperature. One block would provide hundreds of precious gems adorning the woman across the galaxy. Perhaps he would hold a minute portion into a warming room or a tub and entice his whole body with salvic drench water. He looked back toward the sky pilot consoles while Rafik talked to his Serbians. Doubting the Antarian's sincerity, he still questioned whether he could trust Rafik at all, and he wondered why the Marsavik people wanted the command's third sector transmitter coordinates. The forward console beepers sounded and Rafik spoke on the open channel. This is Rafik. We await your instructions to leave the cryptus. The Marsavik voice, muffled against the Oreo stacks, had a certain annoyance to Bragg. They lived isolated within the cryptus. Bragg thought they would have longed to have contacted other races around the galaxy, yet they wanted solitude. Maybe having the transmit station coordinates would allow them to prevent any unnecessary contact. We will move your ship. It is not Well, what are they going to do with those coordinates? shouted Bragg as he stepped from the ladder. Rafik's red eyes opened wide and he whispered something to one of his servants. They quickly moved from the console, grabbed Bragg under the arms, and dragged him toward the propulsion corridor. What do you think you're doing? 
allowing us to get out of here, Brag, answered Garrick, Rafik second Serbian. Why ask a question like that, now or ever? I'm just a little curious, aren't you people curious? You gave coordinates too. We have no use for your questions. You will be brought to Scavia Tangle. Why Scavia Tangle? Maybe we will let you in on our next venture, Brag. Rafik's little white face compressed with anger wrinkles as he walked briskly from the console. I should kill you now and take the rest of the Aurea. You need me to fully pilot the ship. Maybe. I'm concerned Ross will be waiting for us in the nebula or in the proximity of the planet. That is a problem. Ross has issued the complor. The what? An Antarian supremacy term you know precious little about, Bragg. Rafik turned and headed back alone to the propulsion corridor. Bragg tried to smile at his offices. What is the complor? You and your questions, Bragg. Perhaps I should just leave you with the disk of the Antarian Battle Archives. The Complor refers to the challenge issued by Defeat. Ross defeated Rafak at Marigalt. It is Rafak's duty not just to kill Ross, but to avenge the Antarian defeat. Rafak had little knowledge of the Polonis intricacies. Bragg as he sat in the commander's station, since this was the only reason Rafik kept him alive. He pretended his own presence would assure them an exit from the nebula, but he remained cautious about Rafik's actions after ESS-27 actually left the cryptus. On maximum viewing, he saw the cryptus orifice, the apex of the displacement, a, a twisted blue area, producing an opening toward the wide red outer boundary. Polonus, is, is that orifice on a cycle? This is correct, answered the Polonus. He still had not adjusted to ESS-27's masculine voice. The cycle runs every 27 minutes and closes 3.6 minutes and begins again. Rafik at the science station looked up. We will be heading through that orifice. Polonus, will the energy shooting back into the command sector affect this vessel? I cannot determine the path of the energy until we are out of here answered the computer. Bragg pulled at his mustache and studied the Antarian's face in the monitor. Maybe he would still have to kill Rafik and the others if he was going to survive himself. Status of the Marsavic tug drag. The drag is taking us forward through the trough, but there appears to be a problem. Well, what's the problem? asked Bragg. The orifice is closing. Rafik stood and came down the stairs. I do not trust them. I repeatedly asked them why they wanted transmitter station coordinates and they refused to talk about it. They don't even possess names, Serban, said Garrett. Bragg stood and met Rafik before he reached the commander's station. They have no reason to coil back. Stop boring me with your command terminology, Bragg. What are you saying, coil back? I don't think they deliberately deceive us just to kill us. This orifice closing does not look good. Rafik's small green teeth chatted together like an overworked frequency circuit. Perhaps they have reevaluated. Charge all drag batteries. What? asked Bragg. That's a blatant hostile move. Yes, sometimes hostility is the remedy, Bragg. Not timid command caution. 
He drew a stolen drag beamer from his belt and pointed it at Bragg's bulging chin. On the other hand, maybe a little force is a good thing. Do it. Bragg cleared his throat and turned back to the station. Uh, Polonus, charge drag batteries. Polonus spoke quickly. Sermon Rafik, Commander Bragg may be correct. This is a sign of outward hostility. I will not be ordered about by a command machine. Charge Drac batteries. Do as he says, said Bragg. He walked across his station and watched the green graphic power levels fill the battery depiction on the monitor. Rafik studied the tug drag beams, still slowly moving the ship back toward the closing orifice. Polonus came over the speakers. The energy contained in the collapsed star's gravity trough cannot be measured. We would vanish instantly if we near it, even before impact. Well, they could have already killed us, said Braggs, the sweat forming on his brow. Why pull these games? Silence! Rafik pushed the bay monitor. Gek, bring your people over to the command drag panels. Be prepared to fire drag beams back to the Masavik power source. That power source will not be affected by our drag beams, stated Polonus. Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? Holding the weapon in his hand, he turned toward Bragg. I will take your command console now until we are out of the cryptus. Bragg looked into his intense green eyes. The surrounding yellow sheath pulled back. He slowly crossed the commander's station and moved down the stairs. A wise move, Bragg. If Donaldson had been as wise, he would not have been marooned and his crew would still be alive. Chapter 21 Passing into another dimension was something never accomplished within command science, and it was just as well Ellison was the one perfecting it. Using a box strapped to his compact, Ellison opened a reflective hole near the research vessel's coils. The hole looked like a punctured piece of metal, the sides folded back from the inner reflective surface. After considerable argument, a researcher persuaded Ellison not to be the first to venture inside. Lifted upward by Ross and the others, the researcher crawled into the burrow hole. No one could see nor hear him, although later he said he could see them through a tinted light. His astounding report said a few steps equaled many meters, even kilometers. Any air lingering from the opening quickly dissipated, revealing a potential traveling problem, but he was able to emerge easily from the opening, and Ellison announced the first sojourn into the new dimension was a success. More tests followed over the next few days. Each volunteer now breathed through the compact air supply. Ross air packed over his mouth, went inside the opening and moved out of camp and up the hill by sliding to the right. He adhered to Ellison's instructions not to travel upward from the planet. After an extensive trial period, using his research people, Ellison finally thought they were ready to find a way out of the cryptus. He held an amber-red control disc in his hands. I will be able to control our exit using this disc. It's a simple working tool to bend back the perifield aboard a space vessel. We want to work together and return to the research vessel should the power not hold. I should point out that without the Marsavik peoples using the gravity trough as a power source, this would not be possible. I don't think we will know, even in my lifetime, how they accomplished such a feat, and I pray that they don't somehow pull the plug. Ross, utilizing his compact air bubble, 
followed Pfeiffer and the research party, all armed with drac beamers, through the jagged reflection near the vessel's coils and into the dimension's low light. He passed through walls and circuit panels and retreated like a giant, standing in a filtered charcoal light above the hill, mountains, and rivers. When he moved forward a few meters, he sunk closer to the ground, traversing distances instantly, but was uneasy on his feet. Steadying himself on Pfeiffer, he retreated several meters and hovered kilometers above the planet. Another couple of steps and he was completely off-planet and could see the outlines of the cryptus interior merging into the darkness. Doctor, what about that sun, that energy? Can it hurt us? asked Ross, moving next to Allison. The doctor's face, gray in the dimensional light, tightened inside his air bubble as he thought. He looked over toward the yellow sun, appearing as if it were only a few hundred meters away. Then he grinned. No, not unless we walk over there and emerge from the burrowing. I'll get my skin shading in the Cambion, thank you very much, said Ross. Allison gambled ESS-14 was outside the cryptus. By aligning themselves properly, they could re-emerge on the ship and notify command. Along the cryptus, a smattering of bright pulses moved from the orifice steadily into the nebula. The displacement extended into the dimension and restricted their movement. Ellison stopped about 30 or 40 meters above the pulses. What happened? Well, I was afraid of this. We cannot leave the cryptus because of the collapsed star, the power source. It's pulling in this dimension also. Can we contact the Marsavik people? asked Pfeiffer. Ellison shook his head. I don't know. I have to understand this before I can deal with it. Perhaps we are best served searching for another opening in the cryptus away from the collapsed star. Agreed, said Ross. We'll just survey it and get out. They moved slowly along the cryptus, still feeling the tug several hundred meters away, but the same displacement pulses obscured the entire cryptus lining. Finding an opening from this dimension will not be possible, said Allison. They're defending their turf, is what they're doing, said Ross. Spoken like a military man, no offense intended. I think this is an effect of the tremendous trough power unleashed and surging through many dimensions. We should return to the planet and reevaluate the situation. Ross moved closer. Doctor, we need to get back outside and notify command. How? Right now we have no other option, said Allison. Ross nodded, and with the sun as their guide, they burrowed back toward the third planet. The trail plotted on his compact Polonus. Ellison veered to the right, but Ross saw something very small and traveling away from the sun. Doctor, what is that? Ellison turned in the dim light. You see something? Over there, a vessel moving toward the orifice. Ellison changed his trek through the dimension. I would say that vessel is an explorer spaceship. Damn right. Ross ran by him, but moved too quickly, overshooting the ship, and he landed a few thousand kilometers away, maybe 20 meters in the dimension from the ship. He sat up and saw the marking for ESS-27. Brag. But the orifice is closed, said Allison, and the gravity trough remains. Going on to that ship, Allison helped Ross up. No one will see you if you merely survey the ship through the dimension. Ross smiled. Makes you wonder who's watching you every day of your life. Remember, this requires extraordinary power, said Ellison as they headed toward the ship. We would not be burrowing through this dimension at all. 
Ross stood over the locust sphere and looked down the ship's neck to the sky pilot bays as the SS-27 continued at a steady rate toward the orifice. He turned as Ellison and the others approached. Can we estimate how long until orifice impact? Four or five hours, possibly, said Ellison. Looks like a tug drag. Once the ship is in the Xanif plane, nothing can bring it back. It could vanish into the collapse point or be stretched out into a two-dimensional plane. I want to know what's going on out there, said Ross. Move closely, Ross. You can't pop out unless I activate a weakness in the dimensional wall. I understand. Ross first progressed through the layers of stress-free steel and polymer. Still in the dimension, he emerged directly through the main viewing screen. The locust tended severely. He clenched his fists when he saw Rafik's face between the consoles and sitting in the commander's station. John, there's an Intarian running that ship, said Pfeiffer. Rafik? Rafik! I thought he was dead! And Jack Bragg. Ross saw the rotund Bragg, still in his Navy and Gold Command uniform, standing along the observation bubble near the viewing screen. Look at him! Look at him! Traitor! Why would he cooperate with Rafik? asked Pfeiffer. I don't know. Still inside the dimension, Ross stood at the commander's console monitors as Ellison and his party emerged through the viewing screen. There's a tug drag on the ship. There's definitely a tug drag on this ship, Doctor. I can see it on the instruments, and they are being pulled toward the trough. Why is that? The question, Doctor, is why they have drag batteries at full strength. What is he going to do, shoot his way out? The tug drag cannot be broken with drag beams, said Allison. Let's check the rest of the ship. Ross passed through the grid floor and up to the walking corridor. In a few seconds, he was in propulsion and saw three additional Antarian Serbacs working at the coil console. As he traversed the walls and emerged inside the sky pilot bays, heightened blue light caused him to stop quickly. Caleb's Zoria, it's still bright even through this dimension. Now I get it, said Pfeiffer. Now we know how Bragg was convinced to pilot ESS-27. Ross turned to his friend. Mike, if used properly, you could control the galaxy with one stack of this. Look what they have. How is this possible? Ellison approached from behind him. My God, the riches of the galaxy in an ESS Sky Pilot Bay. Ross saw one Antarian at the Sky Pilot Bay console. Can we hear what he's saying? Impossible. Sound does not appear to travel between dimensions as light does. Maybe light's velocity allows it in. I don't know. Within the dimension, Ross stood next to a stack of Caleb's Zoria, and his eyes darted around the bays as he thought. Getting out of the cryptus, getting out of the cryptus inside the dimension now seemed impossible. This vessel might be a convenient vehicle, providing they could stop the, the tug drag. Dr. Ellison, if we could burrow out, could you do anything with that tug drag? A tall order. One of us will have to remain within the dimension with the disc control. If we fail to stop the destruction of this vehicle, we can re-enter the dimension. We can escape into the dimension if need be. As long as we are powered. Understood, said Ross. Mike, we're going to take out these little fangwalfs. Fangwalfs? asked Ellison. I'm not familiar with that term. Is it Antarian? Ross removed his drack. It is. A fangwalfs is a subterranean creature that lives in the garbage and debris of Antarian cities. They spread disease like a large rat with fangs. It's the ultimate Antarian insult. 
Ross left the dimension and appeared in propulsion, Drac fully charged, and singed the Antarian Surbarks to dust before they could turn from the console. He met Pfeiffer in the Sky Pilot Bay corridor. Pfeiffer had taken out the lone Antarian in the base. A dimensional hole opened near walking corridor B. Pfeiffer and Ross ran toward Ellison inside. We could win a lot of battles this way, Doctor. You need the power, Ross. We don't control collapsed stars every day, you know. Ross zoomed along, as if moving on a fast walkway in the dimension along corridor B. When he passed through the locust wall, Raffick was still at the commander's console, trying to reach someone on the monitor. Ross smiled as he thought about capturing the Antarian. We need to bring him back to command alive. Pfeiffer grabbed his arm. John, is that really a good idea? The safe thing would be to kill him, but we need his intelligence information. He has to be debriefed. Then we can kill him. We'll put him in restraints. Ross moved toward the security panel behind the science station. Doctor, can you pull out a couple of restraining harnesses out of there without him noticing? Should be able to. Ellison passed through the door and from the wall behind the panel opened the dimensional hole. He quickly retrieved two harnesses and then closed the opening. Then he walked back and handed them to Ross. Well, this should prove interesting. If you place that around Raffick, I can release it from the dimension. The same with Mr. Bragg over there. After fighting Raffick so long during the war, this will be an extreme pleasure. Within the dimension, Ross leaped down from the locust and quickly positioned the belt around Raffick's bulky shoulders, arms, and neck. Pfeiffer placed the other belt around Bragg at the observation deck. He nodded to Ellison and the doctor released the belts. Raffick, immediately surrounded and restrained by the bright red glow, began fighting the field. Ellison opened up the dimension again, and Ross strutted onto the locust with Pfeiffer. The first thing he heard was the Antarian's chatter. Ross! What is this? Are you working with them now? Is that it? Ross, thank God you're here, shouted Bragg, trapped in the field harness. Ross turned. Jack, shut up. Innocent, innocent, I assure you. The Antarian took me against my will. He marooned Steve and killed his crew. Truth, Dragger, cried Raffick, his face wrinkled in anger. Smiling, Ross turned briefly as Ellison and the three of his researchers emerged in the front by the viewing screen. Where did you come from? Where are the Masabric people? asked Raffick. Ross approached and moved his face so close he could smell the Antarian's sweet, flowery breath. You tell me, what kind of a deal did you work out with them? I have work no deal. They're trying to destroy this ship and send us to our deaths. But Bragg, he is a truth dragger. Ross moved toward the consoles. Either way, you two will spend your time in a restraint cambion if we should extricate ourselves from this. Raffick hobbled back to Ross. We are not enemies, Ross. It is the Zorka that threatens us. Ross stared at him, remembering the carnage, not only at Marigal, but throughout the entire war. Neither man said anything as Raffick's tiny eyes focused on Ross. You will pay for this, Ross. The Complor will be satisfied. Complor is meaningless because I'm bringing you back to Mothership 13. We will spend the rest of your unnatural life telling your sad tale of woe to command intelligence if we get out of here. Let me say in advance that what ultimately is about to happen 
strains all reason. Before I explain the scientific basis of the cryptus, let me just say something about the Cambian, the exterior room that Ross and others step into while aboard ship. If I were going into deep space, I'd take along the hiking trails in western Massachusetts and New England. When Ross is at one level of that mountain, and he's looking back to that central place on Earth, he's looking from Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire down to the Holyoke Range along the Connecticut River, which is about 60, 70 miles away. So it's always good to have a place to escape, especially when it's the central place of the universe. And now, the cryptus. I do not posit a scientific principle or even an explanation for this fantastic exposition from the Masarvic people. Asimov, in his book on science fiction, makes it clear that some things imagined may not have scientific answers. And I maintain that trying to plug in the science makes the story farcical. Nevertheless, I am quite proud of this feat. And I hear the dissenters, that couldn't happen. Were the ancients on Samos able to explain the science of spaceflight? Mm -hmm. This is Robert P. Fitton crawling into another dimension. I'll see you next time for the final episode of Galactic Command and Nebula Planet. And how do I get out of here? All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.